You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tenakoto Katoa, ko Liam Henson Toku Ingoa, no mai Heidi Mai Kitawaya Motenera. Kiora and welcome to the Wire for Adamade Friday. I'm your host Liam, taking you through the Wire for the 14th of October. Efakine coming up on the show today. I have my regular chat with City Councillor Shane Henderson, chatting about his re-election to the Waitakere Ward seat, the local elections, and his goals for this term of council. I've also spoken to Caroline Mareko from NZCTU about the Pacific Pay Gap Inquiry and what needs to change about wealth inequality in Aotearoa. We also have a corridor with the Green Party's Ricardo Menendez March on the government's reopening of the migrant worker and parent visa schemes and some of the issues that they've identified within it. And lastly, I spoke to Michael Plank from the University of Canterbury about the risk of new COVID-19 subvariants. We also have a report from David Loeshi covering last week's tertiary education union strike. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> We would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces, so please get in touch to Good Party You can text us on 5395 or Waimairane, give us a call in the studio on 309 3879. Also, You can catch all these stories and and more by podcast on the 95BFM website, 95BFM.com. Now, tell me about your father. City Councilling on 95BFM, our weekly chat with the good people of Auckland Council. Last week, the Tamaki Makoto local elections concluded, seeing an overall shift to the centre-right in local boards and councils, exemplified by the landslide mayoral win of Wayne Brown. This was largely due to an overrepresentation of older upper-class people in the vote, a symptom of incredibly low voter turnouts across the board, especially seen within younger people. Many criticised the accessibility of local election voting, with Minister for Local Democracy, Nania Mahuta, being one of many who didn't receive their papers in the mail. In our regular city councilling segment, we've had a chat with Shane Henderson, who has been recently re-elected to the Waitakere Ward seat, about the election and its upcoming goals for this term of council. We first ran over what the last few weeks have been like for him whilst campaigning. Congratulations on your re-election, Shane. Uh, this local election, during this local election, what have been some of your biggest takeaways compared to previous years? Yeah, it was a really interesting election, wasn't it? Um, yeah, thanks for the congrats. It feels good to be back. Um, but we, I think we're seeing a mood for change uh, in the Auckland public and kind of some of the um, the normal answers to, to uh, solving Auckland's problems. I think that people want a bit of a different approach and a bit of a fresh approach. Um, the other thing I'd say is that the electorate didn't seem that mobilised. You know, we were about 2019 levels of um, voter turnout, uh, which is pretty concerning. Um, so we're having a lot of people kind of staying home rather than vote. 
uh, and the people that did turn out to vote saying, look, we, we want a bit of a change. And so I think those are my two main takeaways. Yeah, we've definitely seen quite a big issue rise in voter turnout for local elections this year. Obviously, most years have quite low turnout, but it has seemed to go down a little bit compared to previous years. What do you think might have gone wrong, if anything, this year? And what could be done better next time? Yeah, I think there's no silver bullet in terms of turnout. Um, people do talk about things like an online voting option, um, and different kind of solutions like that. And I think those things can form part of a, part of the picture. But really, the number one thing we have to do is energise and motivate the electorate to actually turn out and vote. You know, it gives them something to vote for. Um, uh, essentially, make, make sure that they know their policies and they know their candidates, um, and it's a really easy process for them. And so there is no easy answer, but we've got to work on those things because I think it's really not good to have a mandate of about 30% of the population uh, that you're, you're representing in terms of a vote. Uh, that's not a good thing. Do you think that the turnout represented an issue in accessibility to the elections, or is it more so just based on individual people not feeling like they know enough to vote? Yeah, one of the things we saw in 2022 was um, people lining up all the way out the buildings and all the way down the block trying to vote on the actual day, on the last day of polling. So I think we do need to look at maybe an election day style thing like we do in central government because there is a desire there to actually make it a bit of a civic process and actually turn out on the day as opposed to just postal voting. Um, but, you know, there was ease of access issues. Uh, for example, there was no special voting place on the North Shore at all. Um, those, are, those are some of the things that we need to look at because I just don't, I think there are aspects of the way this was run that we need to look at and have a bit of a review, I think. Of course, we have seen a bit of a shift to the right in the political leanings of local councillors, especially in Auckland this year. Starting off with a new mayor, what sort of impacts could the election of Wayne Brown have on Tamaki Mikado and Auckland Council? Yeah, I think one of the um, ways that we can look at these results are a referendum in terms of the council-controlled organisations like AT um, and also maybe Ekpanaku and others that uh, people are a little bit frustrated with maybe the level of democratic input that they have into those processes. Uh, and Wayne Brown's been really big on that, uh, and that was part of his main pitch uh, to the voters, and that was endorsed resoundingly by the public. So I think we do need to listen to that and actually look at maybe what ways that we can bring things back in-house or make things have a bit more democratic oversight. Uh, people really do want to say in how their roads are built and uh, cycleways are going and things like that. Uh, those are the things we need to look at. And so that's one of the things that we'll be expecting from the new term. Um, and the mayor's been very clear on his thoughts on that. Additionally, in your Waitakere ward seat, your former your former co-councillor has been substituted for a new councillor named Ken Turner, who leans slightly more towards the centre-right. Will this have any impacts on the ongoing work that council is doing for Waitakere? No, on a day-to-day -day level, I, I think that uh, Ken and I are really determined to um, work with the residents. You know, no matter what your political persuasion is, people don't often really care about that on a day-to-day -day level. They just want their potholes fixed, right? So um, Ken and I are actually sitting down this afternoon to have a chat about how we divide up the pie and work on, work on it together. Because, um, you know, despite our different political leanings, we actually get on really well together. We're both uh, former ex-Calston Boys students, and, um, you know, we can uh, work re really well together, so no issue there. So, what are your biggest goals and priorities for this term in council, starting off with your biggest goals for Waitakere? Yeah, well, uh, my biggest goals for Waitakere and the city, I would say, um, in terms of our climate action, we've done some fantastic work, I think, with the climate action targeted rate, um, and, you know, brand new busways, uh, bus lanes that are going to go online, those kind of things. Um, we need to really work uh, on that and actually make sure that we're encouraging mode shift. Uh, I see there's been some issues with the trains recently, which make me very mad, to be honest. 
uh, because we need to be encouraging people to have different options in terms of their buses, their trains, their cycling and all the rest of it. So number one for me is to work on climate and it always kind of has been. Um, the other thing I just want to put a plug in for um, just briefly is we do, do need a second swimming pool in Waitakere. Uh, that's a big issue for me, so servicing the northwest Massey kind of area. Currently we've got one public swimming pool for 250,000 people. Uh, that's a very poor level of service and when you go to school holidays, I could talk about this all day, but um, on a school holiday you'll find kids lining up in the heat in the car park uh, which is a health and safety issue as well. So we desperately need a new pool. Uh, we need um, to work on climate. And I'd say look at Buster Piha as well. And are there any major hopes or goals that you have for Tamaki Makoto in general for the next three years? Yeah, I think that, uh, to be honest with you, I think Council has been um, doing a lot of good work uh, in terms of uh, Council uh, sort of Auckland-wide, and I think we need to just continue and tick on with that work. But we also need to look at reform, and I sort of talked about this earlier. Uh, the the Council-controlled organisations, we need to look at that. Um, we need to look at our transport system, which is still not working for so many Aucklanders. So there's still plenty of work to do, um, but we're all keen to sort of get on board the one walker and uh, row towards it. Yeah, you've already mentioned in this interview the um, mass cancellations that the Western train line has been going under within the recent weeks, as well as just many different issues with Auckland Transport over the past few months, years, but especially these past few days, I think have been pretty demoralising for people who are trying to commute via public transport. What can you say to these people to keep them motivated to be taking public transport when it feels like it's getting increasingly difficult? Yeah, so um, public transport has all sorts of great benefits if you can have access to it. I mean, one of the things that I, I just prefer going into town by public transport myself personally, I can check my phone, I can hang out, it's relaxing, a um, little bit stressful in the car. So um, one of the things is to kind of look at those benefits that you have. Um, but also I'd say encouraging the organisations to say, look, this isn't good enough and we need to be working harder to get people more access, more reliable and cheap access. That was City Councillor Shane Henderson on the local elections and his term and his goals for this council term. Have you tried mindfulness? Try mindfulness. City Councilling on 95BFM. This is Love is Useless by I'm Amelia featuring Johnny on the lineup for the upcoming 95BFM Halloween party, which you should totally come along to. We'll be back with some more news after this.
Staff members at all eight of Aotearoa's universities, including Auckland Uni, participated in strike action on Thursday, October the 6th. Union members are calling for an 8% pay increase from their employer to match rising inflation and the increased cost of living. The decision to strike came after 87% of tertiary education union members voted to reject universities' pay offers across the Motu. 95BFM headed down to speak with protesters outside of Auckland Uni's clock tower building about why they were participating in the strike. So what made you join in on the strike today? Um, for the last three years, we've been working complete overtime. We've had excessive workloads. Um, many of our colleagues have left because they felt very burnt out and disenchanted with the university and feeling really undervalued by the university. And so many people have quit. And, and instead of rewarding people for the hard work and effort to keep the university running, during, particularly during the pandemic, uh, They've instead just chosen to overwork the people who have chosen to remain um, and exploited them for the care and passion they have for their roles. And it's not good enough to say that they're just going to give us a 2% inflation increase when the cost of living has gone up by nearly 8% and we haven't had pay rises for a long time. Uh, the professional staff haven't had performance reviews for a couple of years. Um, and it's all well and good for the university to email us and say oh we we appreciate your hard work but their actions uh, don't don't speak to that so um, it's we care about what we do we'd rather not be on strike we'd rather be working and and helping our students and helping our colleagues but um, it's about time that we did this yeah well I'm the president of the union so I had to um, but um, if I were only a member, I would have joined as well because this is something that's very important to staff who um, are thoroughly professional and have demonstrated to the university their value over the last three years during COVID. So it's really important today that we're out on strike and that we've got all our members from the University of Auckland out on strike for a fair pay rise. Right now, the employer is offering us um, an offer that is effectively a pay cut in real terms, as well as clawbacks on really important terms and conditions. So it's important that we strike today to get the employer to come back to the table and offer us a fair pay rise. That was 95BFM journalist David Loeshi chatting to protesters at last week's tertiary education strike. We'll be back after this quick break with a quick tune. What's a seven-letter word for street fighter? No idea. I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club, there's... Shay Fu, DJ Set, and Jerem Hall. And tomorrow... Danny Ella, Ruben and Band, plus Jenny Smith Live. Followed by DJs Bobby Brazuka and Jerem Hall. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. For the best in hip, you gotta keep it green. The hip store on K Road is what you need. And food, and twine, books, clothes, vape supplies, and oil, and butter. Drug tasting, I brother. For the best in hemp, you gotta keep it green. The hemp store on K Road is what you need. Experience the hemp store at 253 Karanga Happy Road. For nationwide delivery, visit hempstore.co.nz or call 0800 Hemp Store. For the best in hemp, you gotta keep it green. The hemp store on K Road is what you need. <laughs> 
Raiders, vampires, and other eldritch creatures of the night, arise and get your groove on at the 95 BFM Halloween party. With terrifying performances from Am Amelia, Dalian RD, LAW, Greco Romank, Half Hexagon, and Slumbug. Abandon hope all ye who enter. The 95 BFM Halloween party 2022. Saturday, October 29th at Whammy Bar and Backroom. Get your tickets now from Under the Radar. 95BZFM.
Why should New Zealanders care so much about this? Because your children will curse you if you don't. A pair of resident visas that have been closed for some time in Aotearoa, New Zealand, have been recently reopened. Immigration, Mini- Immigration Minister Michael Wood announced that the skilled migrant category and parent category visas would be soon reopened, allowing people to become residents through their careers or through their children's citizenship. However, various groups have criticised the conditions of entrance, including the Green Party, who've raised concerns about class inequality becoming a part of the system. I spoke to their immigration spokesperson, Ricardo Menendez-March, about the current system and what can change. So what it means is that um, several people who have been waiting for many years, um, who have been on the queue to be reunited with their parents, will finally start having their applications processed. The problem is, though, is that at this rate, it could take another four years for some of the families to be reunited. What the government also did was reopen the skilled migrant category, which is a pathway to residency for migrant workers. Um, This will give relief to some workers uh, who have, again, been waiting for a pathway to residency, but with the government um, having the intention to raise the points to acquire residency, it could potentially lock out some people who have been working on some of the most exploitative industries, such as hospitality and construction. How have these uh, visas changed since they were initially closed at the beginning of the pandemic or earlier? So the, the key issue with the parent category visa is that it has an income threshold. And what it effectively tells migrant communities is that their parents' are worth is determined by how much you earn. And it was a massive salary threshold, which was like a six-figure dollar salary. And now it's been dropped to... Um, 1.5 the median wage or two times the median wage depending on your situation, which effectively still tells people that the parents' worth is determined by your income, and we think that is deeply unfair. Do you think that this has anything to do with the links of New Zealand trying to push skilled workers back into its economy to see our cost of living managed, or do you think that that is not a good excuse to leave this have this class inequality within the new program? I think we need to remember that skilled worker is starting to become a dog whistle because it is simply not useful to conflate salaries with skills. We've got people who are doing essential work for our economy who are getting paid peanuts. And and this is why um, we've been really um, vocal about the need to stop tying incomes with your ability to access residency because if the government wants to lift incomes from migrant workers, they can use many tools available at their disposal, including therapy agreements, lifting the minimum wage, and decoupling work uses from single employers. A lot of issues regarding uh, migrant workers within the past few years has generally talked about the living conditions that they have to be living underneath when they do get to New Zealand, when they are living in Aotearoa. Do you think that allowing people who are on the lower end of the class spectrum entrance into New Zealand could see this problem become worse if they aren't well off enough to be able to fend for themselves? Well, what we could end up with is a guest worker scheme, um, which effectively means many workers um, who are in some of our most precarious industries, such as horticulture, hospitality, and construction, um, will be able to be let in, but they will never have a pathway to residency, effectively keeping them um, at the mercy of exploitative employers. And this is why we don't think, again, that 
tying residency pathways to incomes is useful because because it will result in more people being trapped in an exploitative situation. So what exactly are the Greens calling for in response to these issues? So we're calling for the government to drop the income threshold for people to be able to bring their parents. We think a ballot system um, would be fair, and I think the government needs to recognise the contributions that parents um, bring to their communities, including in cultures where there's intergenerational households. Um, equally, we do think that the government could reimagine its immigration system to put workers' rights at the forefront instead of just talking about meeting the needs of the Another issue that the Greens have highlighted is the need for Im- for migrants to perhaps bring in voting laws. Do you think that this is still a necessary thing to call for? Well, I mean... <laughs> The problem is, is that local body elections have been run by private companies, and these private companies haven't been diligent in ensuring that people's eligibility for voting is respected. So we've had um, new residents getting turned away because um, these private companies got the eligibility criteria wrong. The solution to this is to get the Electoral Commission to run our local body elections instead of contracting these services, which are essential to a well-functioning democracy to private companies. That was Green Party Immigration Spokesperson Ricardo Menendez-March chatting about the reopening of the migrant worker and parent visas. We'll be back after the break. 95 BFM presents Troy Kingy and the Promises live at the Power Station, October 14. She was born in Manhattan in 1984. Celebrating the release of the sixth album in his 101010 series, the Year of the Ratbags and their musty theme songs, finds Kingy jumping in the DeLorean and taking us back to the big synths and bad hair of 1984. Troy Kingy and the Promises, Friday, October 14th at the Power Station. Tickets on sale now from Ticketmaster. Show Me Shorts, New Zealand's premier short film festival is coming to cyberspace. That's right, six programs of fantastic short films, from whānau friendly to horror, available to watch from the comfort of your own home, or workplace, or school, or tent, or car, I guess, if you're parked up, down the shed maybe, at the beach, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, sorry, I missed that, yeah. Right, Show Me Shorts, on demand, perfect for people with short attention spans. Find out more at showmeshorts.co.nz. Hot rubber on cement, baby, that's what it's all about. Your foot on the pedal, the wind in your helmet, ding, 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 went the bell. The Bike Report, keeping you up to date on Auckland's glorious cycleways. Every weekday, alternating breakfast and drive. Crank those knee pads, Angel Pie. The Bike Report on 95 BFM. Thanks to Bike Auckland. Celebrate Biketober. Go to bikeauckland.org.nz.
classic journal question as well. Can I have a jaw? The wire. The New Zealand Council of Trade Unions and the Human Rights Commission have recently made recommendations to the government on how to minimise the Pacific pay gap. This came due to a report into the systemic gap seen between Pakeha men and minority groups in their incomes. The groups have called for urgent pay transparency legislation to be put in place, as well as changes to the living wage and minimum wage, as well as implementing protective measures. To learn more, I spoke to NZTTU's Caroline Medeco about what they're calling for and why it's important. She first ran through the findings and purpose of the Pacific Pay Gap Report. The Pacific pay gap report was uh, released and launched um, earlier this week uh, and it was in regards to uh, the findings and also very key recommendations um, from the actual inquiry that was uh, conducted by the Human Rights Commission and the support of um, particular members from the community, from employers, unions, um, and uh, sectors of, uh, of the, or work sectors really, uh, to um, conduct this inquiry about uh, the significant pay gap, uh, ethnic pay gap. And how big is the pay gap right now? Um, quite significant. It has been for some time. The EEO Human Rights Commissioner, Sao Normali Karanina Sumel, had indicated uh, with a slide uh, showing at the launch in regards to uh, the pay gap uh, between Pakia men and uh, Pacific men and Pakia men and Pacific women. Um, the median hourly earnings between a Pacific man and a Pakia man is 18.8%. The gap between Pakia men and, and Pacific women is at 25.1%, alongside our Māori women who experience 8.9% of the pay gap. So for every $1 a Pakia man earns, a Pacific man earns 0.81, and a Pacific woman earns 0.75. So when you look at that in terms of you know a lifetime of earnings, a Pacific man can earn um, uh, nineteen thousand five hundred less annually compared to a Pakia man, and over the course of a lifetime, a Pacific man can earn um, would have earned three hundred and sixty four seven. 1,786 less than a Pakia man. And for a Pacific woman, they earn on average 24,671 less than a Pakia man annually. So over the course of a lifetime, this accumulates to close to half a million difference in lifetime earnings. So that's the significance of the pay gap, Liam. And um, and that's, that is a huge issue and also um, a concern over decades of what has been happening uh, with our Pacific workforce and the earnings over this time. What are the measures that NZCTU and the Human Rights Commission calling for in response to this issue? We're calling for, um, I think there are some very key recommendations to the government. There's about, I think about six um, within that report. One of them really is urgently um calling for a, um, for the introduction of a pay transparency legislation. The other is around establishing a national pay equity task force 
to ensure that Pacific, Māori and ethnic pay gaps are closed by 2042 or even less than that. There's also um, a call to implement the recommendations of the Tripartite Working Group on better protections for the contractors, um, a call to ratify the International Labour Organisation or ILO 190 Violence and Harassment Convention, um, also a call to raise the minimum wage to the living wage um, to the same level as the living wage to ensure that increases over time remain adequate for people's living costs and also ensure that as the living wage increases, the minimum wage increases at the same time. So we have, we, all of us have responsibility, a shared responsibility um, for these recommendations, um, whether we're employers or unions, um, but even so for our Pacific workforce and our community as well. It is a shared responsibility, but this is an urgent matter now. Um, and, and we are calling for action. Um, we can't wait uh, 120 years for for pay equity to happen uh, for our for our uh, Pacific workforce. So yeah, I'm saying it's a shared responsibility, mm. and that we all um, are part of this call to action. What impact could pay transparency have on closing the gap? I think it's really important that um, that uh, people know um, what they're worth. And it's important that as employers uh, that they need to look at um, they need to look at uh, what the pay gaps are within their own um, industries or sectors and address it uh, so that we we don't have uh, you know these gaps widen or continue to stay um, to stay widened. Uh, where people are uh, not earning what they should be earning, and also, but also, I think it's really important that um, that um, you know there are people who have the same qualifications or similar experience, and um, and they need to know um, you know what 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 they're worth, and not have um, and not have pay um, gaps hidden. Um, causing um, issues within the workplace and also with management and with employers as well. What role does the government play in seeing the Pacific pay gap minimised? I think it's the government listening, uh, listening to this to this report that um, has come out. I mean, this is nothing new. We've known this. But what's great about this is that uh, the Human Rights Commission has put out this report and basically this report has drawn a line in the sand or put a stake in the in the ground to say, hey, this has got to stop. This is now there's this is evidence. You know, people have been uh, the inquiry has spoken to so many people um, across the whole uh, workforce, uh, whether they're employers, uh, employees, the Pacific communities, men and women, uh, young people, uh, people with disabilities, and really we need the government to listen and pay heed to um, what has been recommended in this report. Why is it so urgent that we make these changes? We've waited too long. Um, we've been asking for this for many years, and we're just really thankful that the Human Rights Commission um, took the call for action from uh, from our Pacific communities uh, to to do this inquiry. And like I said, this is what they've brought up is not new, but what it does is it supports it supports us uh, to um, to forge forward uh, to close the gaps. 
and to uh, make it known not only to the government but also to our communities, to our employers, uh, to um, and to people who have missed out for so long on what they could have earned and um, all the possibilities of what they could have uh, made use of the monies that I talked about that was in the that was. Uh, uh, highlighted um, in terms of the um, showing um, what the difference was between Pacific men, Pacific women and Pākehā men. I just don't want this report to be shelved. I think it's really important that we take the, uh, this report seriously and the recommendations that have been made and that, like I said, this is a shared responsibility. All of us have to have to work together to uh, make these recommendations um, happen and to do the best that we can. Um, I think it's been a long time coming. Um, this is, as as uh, Salmoor Mali has said, this is a human right and, and we all support that this is a human right issue. That was the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, Caroline Mareko on the Pacific Pay Gap. We'll be back after this quick tune. Actually, a couple of quick tunes. First up, we have Homewrecker by Vera Ellen. market and you're listening to 95BFN.
and all sorts of things when they crawl in around. The Wire. Multiple sub-variants of the COVID-19 Omicron variant have recently made their way, way into Aotearoa, seeing new territory for Aotearoa, <laughs> sorry, having to deal with multiple sub-variants at once. In the final COVID-19 media response, the head of the public health agency, Andrew Old, has made it clear to New Zealanders that the pandemic is not over. COVID cases are currently on the uptick, with Ponicare Wellington leading the pack and having case numbers doubling over last week's amount. To learn more about the next few months of the pandemic, I spoke to Michael Plank from the University of Canterbury about the current new wave. Yeah, well, certainly uh, cases have been trending upwards in the last couple of weeks. Um, and it's early days, but I, I think it is looking increasingly likely that, that we are at the start of a new wave. Uh, and with new variants coming into the country that are able to spread uh, more quickly, um, that will uh, contribute to, to, a, to a wave. Is this a new development, or have health experts been expecting a new variant for a while? Uh, no, I, th- I think it is something that is expected. Um, you know, the virus will continue to evolve to bypass the, the immunity that, that builds up in the population. So we're in a, we're in a cycle, really, where um, the wave recedes once that, that immunity accumulates to a certain level. But what happens is over time, that immunity wanes and a new variant will come along and that allows the the cycle to begin again. What's been interesting recently is the fact that due to international borders being open, we're obviously having a lot more people coming inside of the country, which has also brought in a bunch of new variants rather than just having one specific sub-variant like we have earlier in this year with the many waves that we've had so far in 2022. Uh, what difference does having multiple sub-variants of COVID-19 have compared to having just one? Uh, well, this is a bit of a new situation around the world, really. Previously, most of the waves um, of COVID that we've had have have primarily been driven by a single variant, uh, whereas now most countries have got a mix of, of different variants that are all contributing um, a different amounts, but together are, are able to, to cause a wave or appear to, to be able to cause a wave. And really the situation in New Zealand is, is reflecting that. Um, so, uh, you know, it looks like a lot of these different variants have picked up a, a common set of mutations and that those mutations allow them to, to bypass our immunity um, and to potentially infect people more easily, infect people who've been uh, vaccinated or who've been previously infected um, because of that immune escape that they have. Of course, this is taking place in the lead up to these summer holidays. Does this mean that there will be less COVID cases compared to what we dealt with in winter or does the season not make too much of a difference or could it perhaps make things worse? Um, I think that the, the season and going into the summer months um, works in our favour to some extent. You know, we know it's a lot harder for the virus to spread outdoors. So as people move outdoors more in the warmer weather, um, that, that will make it harder for the virus to spread. 
But that said, you know, it's quite clear that, that it's still possible to get a COVID wave during the summer months. And we've just seen that recently in the Northern Hemisphere. They've had a significant wave in their summer. So although it might make the wave a little bit smaller um, in the summer, you know, it's still possible to get a wave. A month or two ago now, um, the government essentially abandoned most of their COVID-19 health protocols like mask mandates and border restrictions. Is this going to negatively impact the management of the next possible wave? Um, It's possible it will increase transmission uh, a little bit. Um, But at some stage, I think, you know, we we need to move away from these short-term measures um, towards a a more sustainable set of measures that, that mitigate the virus and reduce the health impact, reduce the amount of severe illness, um, but they're not necessarily going to, I mean, they're not going to be able to get rid of it altogether or even necessarily be able to reduce it to low levels. So we need sustainable mitigations rather than, than sort of short-term, um, short-term measures. And I, I think we're, we're trying to move in that direction. Yeah, kind of like keeping on that note, uh, just earlier this morning, uh, epidemiologist Michael Baker suggested that perhaps we should make a return to the traffic light system just in case we do have another major, major outbreak. Do you think that this is a necessary thing to at least consider? I think it's certainly true that we need to keep those tools in the toolbox. And, you know, if we do get another uh, wave, whether it's this time or, you know, for a future new variant, um, if we get to a stage where you know it's putting pressure on our healthcare system, we may need to intervene to to try and prevent that. Um, and so those those measures like um, mask requirements, you know, may ha- have to come back in a situation like that. So uh, you know, certainly wouldn't want to rule them out. Um, uh, you know, whether that's done as part of an alert level system or a traffic light system or whatever you want to call it. Um, but but you know. Um, keeping those 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 tools in the toolbox for when they're needed. You mentioned earlier how COVID-19, the pandemic at the moment, is really just becoming one big cycle of going in waves and out of waves. Is this all just going to become one big part of the pandemic becoming endemic? Is this really kind of, in a strange way, increasing cases is just going to become the new normal going up and down? Um to a certain extent, yes, I think that is true. You know, we are moving towards a state where, where COVID is endemic uh, in our populations. Um, and it often get, gets compared to, to flu, seasonal influenza. And there are some comparisons there. You know, the, the, we get a flu wave every winter and, um, you know, uh, a large number of people get infected with flu and there's, there will be some hospitalizations and some deaths as a result of that. And, and COVID is moving towards that sort of pattern, but it's worse than flu. And it's generally going to be causing a larger number of hospitalizations and a larger number of deaths than flu, you know, at least in the short term. Uh, and so it does deserve um, a lot of attention and um, d- does deserve, you know, whatever sustainable um, mitigations we can, we can put in place to try and reduce the, the impact of COVID. Um, and some of those mitigations, things like ventilation and, and indoor air quality, will also help with influenza and other respiratory pathogens. So looking at it as, a, um, uh, as one of a number of infectious diseases and, and thinking about what the right public health response is, I think, is the, is the way to tackle it. That was uh, epidemiol- That was University of Canterbury's Michael Plank talking about the next possible wave of COVID-19. That was The Wire.
Ko edite hotaka katoa motane wiki, naitamehi kia katoa katoa, i koredoa maiki awa motane da. And that is a wrap on the Friday Wire. Thank you to those who spoke with us today. City Councillor Shane Henderson, Caroline Madako from NZTTU, the Green Party's Ricardo Menendez-March, Michael Plank from the University of Canterbury, and thanks as well to BFM reporter David Boeshi, who covered last week's tertiary education union strike. Neida hoki Tim Hikiakoto e Fakaranga Ana. Thank you for tuning in. If you missed anything, all of those interviews will be podcasted on 95bfm.com. Ka hoki mai te moto te aterewiki. Next up is Land of the Good Groove. You're listening to 95BFM. a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.